G'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 64 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. Well, winter has certainly set in here at PCDU World Headquarters in the far-flung southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, Australia, and I'm shivering. I'm Steve Vischer. How are you going there, Grant? Oh, I'm not shivering, but I am sulking. We haven't flown much lately and uh, that's always annoying. Winter is the time when people don't think about flying in a balloon, although we try and fly every day, and the weather doesn't let us. So, uh, yeah, this is where we start to get probably around June, July. So a little bit of time to go yet. But there have been times in around July where you've flown two, maybe three times in a month. And, uh, yeah, that's always a great time for balloonatics. We start to get a bit pouty. Yeah, well, well, Grant, um, you know, you haven't been flying, but i tell you what, I have been doing a little bit of flying uh, recently. Uh, in fact, um, yeah, I went for my jet ride recently. I'm sure most of our listeners are probably up to date with that now. They have uh, would have heard me gloating on the airplane geeks, no doubt, and uh, <sighs> seen our Facebook yeah. feed and, and our little video podcast that we put out. That was a bit of an experiment, but I was pretty happy with the way that came out. But, uh, boy, what an experience, I tell you. Grant, um, and I'm sure at some point you'll get a chance. So you've done more aerobatic uh, flying than I've done. Uh, yeah, I know. As you pointed out, I'm the prop boy. <laughs> I did point that. It wasn't that. That was so pretentious of me, and, and yet so much fun, and so well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, and uh, big thanks to uh, Mark Pracy. Uh, in fact, the two Marks, uh, Mark, can we say uh, Mark Senior and Mark Junior Grant? Well, I guess I just did up there at uh, jetride.com.au. And I tell you what, uh, Grant, they brought the L39 down here to uh, Turretum, which is uh, not that far from where I live, and uh, I think they had 54 rides booked over the uh, four or five days they were there so uh, poor old Mark I think he was probably pretty tired by the end of it he was flat out and uh, that, that aircraft must drink some juice too because I reckon every second or third flight they were back down and uh, back at the refueling truck filling up again well they did bring their own uh, refueling tanker they organised for that to come down but uh that's mostly so they could get their avatar. It's not normally publicly available at uh, Tiradin Airport. Yeah, so uh, we'll talk a bit about that a bit later on. In fact, uh, later on in this episode, I'll play a little snippet of uh, cockpit audio and uh, you can hear uh, just how uh, Steve sounds as he's being compressed. And uh, most of you would know I'm not exactly a slight fella. When we pulled uh, five, uh, maybe just a bit over five Gs, uh, Mark tells me, well, uh, yeah, imagine five of me sitting on top of your head. That's not a pretty sight, but I'll tell you what, it weighs oh, a lot too. Scary. So uh, we'll play that a bit later on and we're hoping uh, we can actually, uh, we're hoping to actually get the two marks onto the uh, the program uh, you know, hopefully in the next uh, week or two and have a bit of a more detailed chat about what they do there at Jetride and they've got a couple of other businesses which are really quite interesting including a race team so we, we certainly want to talk to them about that. But uh, kicking off the program first Grant, uh, we're going to be uh, doing our second interview with uh, none other than Dick Smith and uh, Dick Smith always a controversial uh, fellow I guess, a very galvanising character I think as we said the first time around when he was on the program mate but uh, you know he doesn't pull any punches and this time we we're uh, talking to Dick about his time at CASA and uh, the Civil Aviation Authority before that and I think even the Department of Transport before that uh, going back to the late 1980s and some of the reforms that came in during his tenure there and uh, you know he's uh, wanting to set the record straight on a few things here so uh, it would be interesting to see what our listeners have to uh, say about that after they've heard the interview but uh, yeah Grant it was uh, quite an interesting chat with Dick and uh, you know I actually found it a bit hard to concentrate on that because it was only a couple of hours after I'd done that jet ride and I was feeling a little frazzled I must admit. <laughs> it did wear you out a little but uh, no as ever, always great fun to chat with Dick and uh, really appreciated him taking the time to come and talk to us. We've got uh, Anthony Simmons returning with another view from the lounge. He wants to know how Avalon works. We've got ATC Ben returning with a controller's corner and he talks about how Avalon does work. Then we uh, finish it off with a uh, couple of interviews with some uh, RAAF crews. Uh, we're talking to a, uh, an FA-18F Super Hornet pilot. We'll be talking to some uh, Hawk 127 crews as well. Uh, we'll also have some listener mail and some shout outs as always. So Grant, let's kick it off. On with the show, mate. 
and it's a very great pleasure to welcome back to the show Mr Dick Smith. Hi Dick. Hi, how's things? Very well and uh, we really appreciate your time. We know you're busy and uh, you've been very, very busy in the media since we spoke to you last. That's right. Well Dick, when last we spoke to you, we spoke to you about flying and your um, aviation exciting adventures and so on. Another part of the, your aviation involvement has been as chairman of the CAA and chairman of CASA. That was back in 1990 to 92 with the CAA and then chairman of the board of CASA from 97 to 99. They, they must have been pretty interesting times for you. Yeah, they were fascinating. The first time I managed to get more changes and reforms through, but then the bureaucracy, I'd say, got my measure and they were able to frustrate any changes. And so the second time I made a few changes, but not really effective. It's quite sad because you'd think uh, that with a businessman like myself, who's got a few clues about how to make a dollar in business, that I would have been able to bring some changes through so we could have a very safe but affordable aviation system. Unfortunately, that was stopped. And uh, that doesn't affect me because I can afford the high costs, but it certainly does affect especially young aviators trying to come along and basically the whole of the general aviation industry. Well, that does uh, raise a couple of questions for us, but we'll come to that in just one second. One, do you have, uh, are you able to give us an indicator of those changes you did instigate in the CAA? Look, I had a list of them. There were something like 80 or 90 major changes and they came from things like, I suppose the most, uh, most important one was that we used to recertify every aircraft. If someone invented a new Boeing 747, it wasn't accepted in Australia. It had to be completely certified. A Bell helicopter, they sent a, a group over to America and always the certification for Australia required changes which cost a fortune, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the case of a 747. Things like the flight data recorder sampling rate had to be different. So no safety was improved but the costs were colossal. I think it was nearly a million dollars. Even wow. a citation had to have various fittings changed on it. It had to have a wire grill over the light in the luggage locker. Uh, the helicopters had to be changed. All of that cost a fortune. I managed to bring in as chairman of CAA in the early days a automatic first of type acceptance for about five countries and that meant that if you have an aircraft which is designed and certified in the USA or New Zealand or in uh, the UK or Germany, it's automatically accepted here with paperwork. That sole saved millions and millions of dollars and has had no measurable effect on safety. I was proud of that one. There are other changes like we had the most ridiculous rules where helicopters had to fly the fixed wing circuit and land on the runway. So if I was going in or out of Sydney Airport, I actually had to approach the threshold of runway 16 if that was in use. And I used to have to taxi out to the taxiway in front of a 747, wait for a, uh, an Airbus to land and then take off on the runway. Uh, that took me about three years to change. I was glad I changed that. And there were also things like we had prescriptive requirements, uh, AGA 7 and 8 for fixed wing and helicopters to land. It meant that the seven helipads that were in the Sydney area all required a special approval from CASA that had to be renewed every 12 months. I managed to change that, harmonise with the USA where they're basically guidelines and uh, that meant that first of all helicopters were freed up a lot and the costs, uh, the dramatic costs were saved. They're just uh, some of the things, of course, I was instrumental in putting in the Victor Lane, which I was very pleased. Uh, that was copied after I flew around the world and flew past JFK Airport. Uh, we managed to bring in the helicopter lanes over Sydney Harbour, copying the ones in Manhattan. Uh, I, look, I could just go on and on. People forget these things. Uh, one of the most recent ones I've had some effect on was that 
Um, we were the only country in the world that's required aircraft at a country airstrip or indeed your own private grass strip to do a minimum of three legs of a circuit, just wasting fuel, reducing safety. Uh, that was because a mistake had been made in 1950 and guidance material, which was based on the UK, had been made prescriptive in Australia. Now, I managed to change as originally as chairman of CIA uh, that we could do a straight-in approach, but you still had to join on down when you couldn't join on base. And I've been working behind the scenes for 25 years on that, and about 12 months ago, we managed to get the change through where you can now uh, join on base or you can join on final. And that's going to save a lot of money. It's very sensible. Wow, that's that's a lot of time to be pushing a, uh, a bureaucracy. Yes, and it's it's all about. Can you imagine these fools? Not so much in the bureaucracy, mainly in the industry, insisted that we keep the requirement for flying three legs of a circuit, mainly because they didn't know that it was just a mistake in the first place. And I, I'm just amazed where you have people from the industry who are complaining that we're going broke, that they can't get jobs, that the costs are too high. But when someone like myself uh, with a proven experience to make a dollar uh, says well here we can save some money by copying the best from overseas and these people actually try and stop it from happening and succeed for many decades. Who has more influence in the sphere of power then would you say it's industry figures Dick or would you say it's more the government establishment? It's a combination but there's not a lot of difference the people in the bureaucracy tend to resist change because if they're responsible for change they can be held accountable whereas if it's an existing rule and it causes a fatality they're not responsible. That's one reason. Also, people just resist change and uh, I'm amazed. See, any success I've ever got is because I ask advice and copy the success of others. And most of these people, not just in the bureaucracy, but certainly in the bureaucracy, but also in the industry, have no interest in what happens overseas. When I might say, look, the United States has a far better airspace system and we could save tens of millions of dollars if we move to that with the same levels of safety, they are just not interested. It's not within their realms of thinking that you could actually ask advice. It's mainly because their egos are so great. And it's interesting, I'm quite often described as a person with a high ego, but I'm the one who's happy to ask advice and copy the success of others where many of these people aren't. Dick, back in, uh, I guess, prior to 1988, it was uh, the Department of Transport or the Department of Aviation. And uh, am I right in saying it was Bob Hawke's administration that established the uh, Civil Aviation Authority? I'm just trying to think. I, I think you're probably right. It's interesting. It was the Bosch report. See, it's amazing the number of people who think I was involved in user pays. They say Dick Smith introduced user pays. In fact, it was nothing to do with me. Uh, it was the Bosch report, which was uh, commissioned by the Labor government, and they decided that the Civil Aviation Authority would basically pay its own way. Uh, their decision was ridiculous because it combined the regulator with the money-making air traffic control side. And I remember I was invited to go on that board by Gareth Evans, and then it was Bob Hawke who made me chair. Chairman. And one of the first discussions at the board meeting was that we had to have a rule which says that uh, primacy would be given to safety. And I remember saying, well, that means we won't be able to give a profit to government. And they all looked at me and said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we're expected to give 50 or $80 million profit to government. But if you spend that on safety, you will always be able to improve safety. So the only way to give primacy to safety is always to spend the profit. Let's not give any profit to government. Well, that went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> 
So even until this day, you'll find there is a completely false rule or regulation at air services, which talks about giving primacy to safety, when in fact they don't. Air services are like Qantas or anyone else. They have a balance between making a profit and spending money on safety. And uh, so it's completely the opposite to what they try and kid the public that they're doing. Do you think we would be better served in that case if, for instance, Air Services Australia was run as a government department as opposed to being a government business? I don't know. Look, because there's no competition, the ideal system would be to have air services in two organisations, say an air services north, air services south. They have a monopoly over the en-route airspace, but all the rest of it is open to competition. All the towers, all the approach networks are all open to competition, the rescue and firefighting. There may be a chance, but if you look at what's happened to the airports, they've been sold off and there's no real competition. They're just monopolies and people get ripped off. So, no, I wouldn't have any hope that by doing anything to air services that you would actually get the cost down. I don't think that's going to happen. Because that is a major problem that uh, we're getting. We're hearing it ourselves uh, from many, many people. I mean, I'm going up with it whenever I go flying, as is Steve. And that's just the cost these days, the cost to shoot an ILS at Avalon, the cost to do a, just a touch and go at Moorabbin. Generally, it's it's agreed that uh, these charges that we're all getting lumped with are killing aviation, especially down the bottom end. Uh, RAOS is doing quite well because it's free of a lot of the legislation and the charges. But uh, GA, where a lot of the future uh, airline pilots and such come from, is, is seems to be being killed. You're absolutely right. But here I was, Dick Smith, a businessman running the Civil Aviation Authority and the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, and I was the person, the lone voice who explained this all the time, said that safety had to be affordable. If it wasn't affordable, you wouldn't have an industry. And believe it or not, not only was I attacked by the bureaucracy and uh, people who just didn't want to admit to that, but a number of fools in the industry also attacked me. And instead of getting out and saying, this is absolutely right, Dick Smith's right, if you make the costs so high that the ticket price goes up so people can't afford a ticket, or in the case the costs are high so a private aircraft owner decides to sell his or her aircraft, that's not good for the industry. And I fought for years, I wanted to have the act to say that instead of high safety levels, to say high safety and participation levels in aviation, because that's the only judge. Any fool can make it safer by making the costs higher. Yeah. So in the end, virtually no one flies. Well, that's that's the joke, is that CAS is not going to be happy and, uh, the, until they've got everything perfectly safe, which means no one's flying. Yes, and I mean, there are many people in CASA who want people to fly. They, there are aviation enthusiasts there, but quite often their flying is paid for by government or they've come from the military where it's always been paid by someone else. So they don't really understand that the, the link between cost and participation. It's interesting. I mean, I'm well off. I can afford any of the costs. It's never worried me. But here I was fighting to reduce costs and I generally was a lone voice and generally failed. One of the things that uh, we've seen a, a fair bit of recently, especially with uh, all the changes, Part 103 and so on that are coming through, um, is a lot of the times the um, industry and CASA will sit down, sort out what they want, then it goes to the lawyers and suddenly it comes back as legal speak and it means while it seems good to the lawyers – when you actually interpret it, it sets up an entirely different situation. I'm hearing that it's almost impossible to get the lawyers and the regulators and the industry all in one discussion where this could all be sorted out in one hit. Is, has that been your experience over time? Yes, it, it's right. Now, see, the regulatory reform program, I believe I started it when I was with the CIA uh, back in the 1990, and that was to do one thing, to remove unnecessary cost. It was for no other reason, The even though we talked about simplifying rules, well, aviation 
immigration rules anywhere, uh, no one can understand them. The people say how good the FARs are, but they really, <laughs> they're just as obtuse as anywhere else. So I had one plan, that is to reduce unnecessary cost. Now, that's been completely lost. No one understands that. Uh, the reason they've been at it for, say, Part 91 for nearly 20 years is they don't quite know why they're doing it. And my suggestion was, look, you just look around the world and if someone is doing it cheaper and it gives the required level of safety, let's copy that. I mean, that's what I've always done in business and that would markedly reduce costs. I'll give you a simple little example. In the United States, you can fly to 12,500 feet without oxygen. Here, it's 10,000 feet. Now, there's another 5% of fuel saving by going at 12,500 feet and our planes will fly that altitude perfectly okay without extra oxygen. What happens in Australia, you're sitting there in the turbulence, normally the inversion layer over the desert stops at about 11,000 feet. So you're down there with the fatigue of the aircraft bumping around, passengers being sick. And imagine if you could go to 12,500 like the United States, it'd be absolutely fantastic and you're saving fuel. Well, it's amazing. I only spent 25 years trying to bring that in and the number of people in the industry who are against it. And uh, I'm fortunate my Cessna caravan has oxygen. I can go up to 18,000 feet, just whack the oxygen mask on. <laughs> but there's many people who can't afford that. So there's a simple change that would save fuel, save greenhouse gases, save costs, and the United States experience of 15 times more aircraft show that at 12,500 feet, they have no measurable difference in accidents than we have, so it could be done. All we know is that after 50 years of experience, the US hasn't planned to change that altitude because it's given the acceptable level of safety. In that case, we should copy it because that would be a saving of millions of dollars in every decade in fuel. So far, it hasn't been done. Eventually, I suppose we'll get there. I don't know when. There's a number of things that the US do that we could look at to improve our ways, as you were saying before, though, that not everything they do is 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 a lot better than us. But another group I've heard that does a, a pretty good job are the Kiwis. Has that been your understanding? Well, well, yes. I mean, they changed all their rules, basically the FARs in two years. And uh, we've been at it for over 20 years, spent over $100 million and really haven't got anywhere. Because see, the person who was driving it, which was me, left. And they don't really know why they're doing it. I can tell you the consultation is just unbelievable. And most people they consult with actually don't want the savings. See, I'll give you a good example. In the USA, uh, you can have an airline service of aircraft of nine passengers and under, and it basically it's called Air Taxi. It's a uh, scheduled air taxi, and it follows the normal Part 135 charter category. Well, I decided to bring that into Australia because that would harmonise with the USA, and it would save a lot of money because airline standards are far more expensive to comply with. Well, we, we called a meeting. And a few of the companies, there was a company at Dubbo who had little Navajos that they kidded themselves that they were met, met the airline standard and CASA had come up with some type of sort of half and half unique Australian abortion of a regulation. And the particular ones who complied with the so-called airline standard didn't want anyone else to be able to have scheduled air taxi. And they, yeah, they yeah. even said, look, we'll have people coming along and competing with us. And I said, well, yes, that's yeah. competition. And so they, because of the over-consultation, they managed to stop it. And so the great advantage of having scheduled air taxi of nine passenger planes was lost and I don't think it's ever come in. And that's the type of thing which you can copy, but it was actually the industry and a weak CASA that stopped it yeah. from happening. No one followed the money to see who benefited. Absolutely. The passengers would have benefited because unfortunately nine passengers cannot afford to have an airline safety standard. That's impossible. The only reason 747s are safer is there's 400 
people to pay for the level of safety, yep. not nine. And it's no other reason I can tell you that, you know, my Citation Bravo met the FAR 25 standards. It could take eight passengers. You could put that on a charter or a scheduled service, but no one would be able to afford to travel. And that's why they allow Navajos, which can't even fly in one engine, to fly on those services. <laughs> it's the old thing is if somebody's complaining about it or doesn't want the status quo to change, follow the money, see who benefits. If it doesn't change, see who benefits if it does. And that, that gives you a good indication. As you said, if, if the passengers are benefiting, that's, that's what we want in the long run, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right there. But what I found, which was fascinating, is that they'd come up with ways of industry people saying, uh, they didn't seem to understand, I said, look, if you make it cheaper and you can get more people to fly, you'll actually make more money in the long run. And I was instrumental in bringing in the private instrument rating, which has been a bit of a flop. But I said, look, get everyone in the the present time in the United States, the number of people who have instrument ratings per head of the aviation population is something something like 10 times the number in Australia. And I said, here's a great way of getting people to upgrade their rating. And then move them into a full instrument rating if necessary. But most people didn't seem to understand that. And the ones who were doing the full instrument rating training said, oh, you know, if we have someone doing a private pilot rating, you know, and it's half the cost, we'll make half as much money. And I said, no, you'll actually make more because you'll encourage participation. There'll be more people flying and the whole industry will do better. Yeah. So so why do you think it was a bit of a flop? Why do you think the private IFR didn't quite go as you'd hoped? Uh, Mainly because lots of the small businesses business people in aviation love aviation they're not really business people and so what they tend to do is stick with what they know and you know what they've said is oh the Australian instrument rating which is one of the most difficult ones to get in the world um, and to keep current is almost impossible I mean you have to do an ILS instrument landing system every I think it's 35 days if I remember correctly there's nothing like that anywhere in the world it's um, in the United States you have to do an instrument approach every six months they don't specify which particular one in the United States, once you've got your instrument rating, you've got it forever. Whereas in Australia, as you know, every 12 months or two years, you have to renew it. The cost is staggering. Now, do we end up with a high level of safety? No, it's the opposite. We end up with far less number of people with instrument ratings. Now, there are literally hundreds of issues like that where costs could come down. But once I left, there's basically no one talking about it. There's no one with that list saying, let's copy, in effect, the lowest cost outcomes from overseas. That's how we can do best. And it's quite sad to me to see, you know, all of the planes made in effect overseas because they copy the best and uh, that's what we should be doing. Well, there's one area that we do seem to be doing uh, reasonably well, like uh, equal to, if not more than some in overseas is in the uh, sport aviation down RAOs area. Have you had much to do with that group? Well, certainly. I mean, I'm a member. I have two microlights, two trikes, and I fly them all the time. I'm one of the few people that has to do three biannuals. Can you imagine that? <laughs> three. Because... Ouch. In America, I would do one. I could have a microlight or a trike license. I could have a, uh, a license in ultralights. I could have a license in um, helicopters and a license in uh, fixed wing, and I would do one biannual. In Australia, I have to do three. I have to do one for the uh, AA in my uh, ultralight. Then I have to do one for my helicopter, and then I have to do one for my fixed wing. So it's three times the cost. Now, I can afford it, but I can understand other people not being able to. Why, you would say, why do we have three times the cost, three times the regulation? Are we three times brighter, or are we three times dumber, 
or are we wealthier? No, we're not than the United States. It's just because whoever brought in the requirements for three never looked at the cost. One of the points that I always make on our show, Dick, is when you compare the, the so-called alphabet groups in the United States, they are very active in, in opposing things like user fees and the like. We don't seem to see so much of that here in Australia. Do you think you know there's a way forward to get through that and have a, a louder voice to government? No, I don't think so. I think Australians are very different. First of all, AOPA in the United States is second only to the National Rifle Federation in regards to a lobby group. It's incredibly powerful. Phil Boyer, who ran it for years, is unbelievably astute, and he managed to keep away from those user charges. And America's the only country, by the way. Yes, it does mean that some people would say that GA is being subsidised by the airline passenger. That's what the uh, United States people are trying to change it, say, and it's certainly what the people here said. Um, But it does allow them to have a thriving general aviation industry. By us going to user pays. Now, everyone will tell you that I was a supporter of it. No, it was a fait accompli. Both parties supported the Bosch report. I was not involved in any way. All I said was, okay, if we're going to pay, make sure we're charged for the actual cost of what they're doing so we can get rid of the particular service if it's not needed. Unfortunately, it became all cross-subsidised, so no one really knows what the cost is, so it all remains. It all becomes more expensive and all becomes more inefficient. And even though people do object to being charged to do an ILS, I'll tell you in many ways that could be better than lumping it in with everything where you have no idea what it is, but the costs to fly are just staggering. I wouldn't want that. In, in terms of everyone paying for like the costs of maintaining that ILS is not just on a, who uses it, but across everyone? Well, yes, if they put it all to general aviation. And uh, I, it depends on just how you're going to charge it. See, there are many people who just don't go and fly an ILS, so they don't pay. And as you've pointed out, at least you can be a member of the uh, Recreational Aviation Australia and not pay these costs. I can tell you if they, they could have ended up with a system where you were paying, that was one of the proposals. And, uh, you know, every plane paid a certain amount of fee. There used to be a, a air navigation charge, which we all paid, and that meant that people who flew VFR and got no service at all paid the same as someone going IFR. Well, that certainly wasn't fair. And generally speaking, when we remove those um, air navigation charges, many Many private pilots have saved tens of thousands of dollars since those days in the 30 years or 25 years since it was removed. That's forgotten because people naturally think of the cost of trying to land at an airport. There are many pilots who keep their planes away from one of these rip-off monopoly airports and don't fly IFR and fly relatively inexpensively except for the very high maintenance costs and the costs that are brought on by our unique regulations. And I can understand complaining about user fees, but gee, there's a lot of astute people who don't pay them because they just don't use that service. And yes, it would probably be best to have the US system where it's generally paid by people who fly uh, in air pass, airline passengers and the taxpayer. Now, as a person, it would be hard for me to support that because I'm well off and most taxpayers would say, why are we going to pay for Dick Smith to fly? But I can understand flyers wanting that and I've never objected to it. It's just that I can tell you it's not going to happen. Uh, the US is the whole out and one day AOPA there will lose and they'll end up with the terrible user fees that we have. The reason for that is not many people fly but most people
people vote and politicians will do everything they can to get general taxation down. And that's an interesting point when you talk about politicians, Dick, and you've dealt with many of them over the over the decades. I have an opinion that they don't see aviation, and particularly general aviation in this country, as being a vote winner. Is, is that your impression? What, what do they generally think of it? No, it's absolutely right. It's not. It's, it only gets any publicity when someone crashes. It doesn't get any positive news. And uh, I remember John Anderson, and I, I thought John Anderson was a pretty bad minister for general aviation. Well, I think Anthony Albanese would probably be worse. And <laughs> neither of them have come up to speed in any way. I've never heard a positive word from either of them to say, let's get more people flying. Let's get more people training. It's just complete silence. I don't think it would be even on there. Uh, they would not even think about it at all because there are basically no votes in it. Mm. And that's very sad. It would be great to have politicians who said, look, this is a great industry. Let's try and get as many people flying as possible. Australia is the best country in the world. For over 20 years, I've tried to get a government, either the government or the opposition, to bring in a policy that says Australia will become a world leader in flying training. And believe it or not, just before the last election, Tony Abbott agreed with that and Warren Truss, the very last moment, so there was no publicity on it, introduced a policy that said that the coalition, if it gets in, will fund and support Australia becoming the leader in the world in flying training. Now, they didn't get in for a start, didn't get any publicity on it, and no one's even thought about it since. I can tell you now we could get tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars to this country. Most of the flying training goes to the United States. We're a far better place, less density of traffic, perfect weather conditions, but you need a government that's behind it who says instead of spending all this money on bringing tourists to Australia, which is good to bring in foreign currency, let's spend some of it on bringing flying training here. We can make a fortune. That's ironic in a way too, Dick, because if you look at most of the um, flying schools at most of our major uh, GA airports at the moment, most of those largest schools are quite full of, um, say, uh, people from the subcontinent in Asia learning to fly for the airlines, but you uh, are seeing a decreasing, at least anecdotally, fewer and fewer people off the street, if you like, just coming in and wanting to do their PPL. Yes, I'm sure that's right, because it's just so expensive and so complicated. Ah, I mean, in the United States, to do your exams, even for the commercial license, it's just a tick-the-box thing, whereas here, it's so much harder, because, you know, it's unbelievably hard, and everyone, as you probably know, in the United States, all the questions are published. Yes. And people say, oh, that's outrageous. Oh, but it, first of all, the cost would be a tenth. It would be a tenth to do the exam system in the United States. And I've had it for 50 years. Now, you would think there would be a lower standard in safety there because of their tick-the-box answers. There isn't. There's no measurable difference between safety of uh, general aviation and that type of flying between America and Australia. And of course, our airline flying is only safer because we haven't had that accident that hopefully we don't have, but we can have one day if we have an airline accident. Let's say when Qantas ran off the runway at Bangkok, it hadn't been a golf course, but it had been a highway or a container terminal. Australia would have gone right to the very end of the safety list because we do such a small amount of flying compared to other countries. Well, there's been a few recent cases that uh, could have gone the other way and uh, totally ruined our, our reputation. and our Abs- Absolutely. Our We've been extremely lucky. And uh, I can assure you, one of the reasons I'm glad 
glad I'm not the chairman or involved with the Civil Aviation Authority is that one day it's going to happen. And uh, I was only talking on 2GB yesterday uh, because these air tickets are getting cheaper and cheaper. I mean, I can't believe the stupidity of $39 air tickets. Does Anthony Albanese think, what's the plan to get them down, you know, $19, $18 until you kill 300 people? Because that will be the result. And I can assure you when, you know, there's this claim now that Jetstar have got uh, co-pilots or first officers have done two or 300 hours. Now, yes, you might get away with it, but the reason you have two pilots is sometimes even the most experienced pilot in the world will make an error and you need to have a first officer, a co-pilot who will, say, who will yell out, taking over and take over and fly that plane, land it, put on the brakes or do something. Now, I have great difficulty in thinking a young 19 or a 20 year old with two or 300 hours experience would actually do that and that's what you want. Yeah, no, that's, these are the kind of things that are coming up in the current Xenophon Senate inquiry, which I note has uh, decided to go and hold. It was due to have released its results by now, but uh, they're they're now asking for middle of June, aren't they? Yes, I haven't followed it at all because I've really switched off. You know, it's quite interesting. Um, the potential is staggering in aviation, but um, you can't do much from the outside. And so I'm uh, doing other worthwhile things. I'm looking at population, which is important. I think we can have a fantastic Australia that isn't just growing you now the 60 million or 100 million people. I just think that it ends up having more people getting a bit of the same cake and everyone getting less. And, and they're all of those things that I'm looking at. Um, one day, maybe I'll do something with aviation again, but certainly not with the present government and minister. It would be impossible to do anything. Do you have any ideas at the moment about how you'd like to see aviation improved? Oh, well, I'd love to see a government saying we're going to be the leaders in the world in flight training. I'd like to see the Act say that we're going to go for high levels of safety and participation. I'd like to see general aviation booming, as it should do in this country. I think we should be encouraging people from all around the world to fly what I call recreational aviation in this country. There was a fantastic company, I think it was called Goanna Air or something like that, that used to fly Americans here. Well, they had to close down because some fool bought in the most ridiculous ASIC requirements, anti-terrorist requirements, that the paperwork to try and get an American pilot to be approved to fly a Cessna here was so impossible he closed down. Now, that type of absolute incompetence where we're going backwards. I mean, the terrorists have won. To have spent $50 million, this was under John Anderson, who was a fool, of putting, you know, every pilot having this dangly little bit of plastic and putting <laughs> chain wire fences at places like Birdsville where any terrorist would just buy an air ticket because there's no X-ray machines anyway. He wouldn't have to get his wire cutters out to cut the bit of the wire. In fact, he'd just walk around the side of it. But just a complete waste of money so it looked good. Yeah. Instead of having a minister of the calibre who says, look, we are going to do things for terrorism, but we're not going to do things that just look good. Australians are not that foolish. In fact, I think we are. I think the terrorists have won. And uh, with the money that's spent, it's obviously making aviation more unaffordable, less people are flying. They're affecting our economy. They're affecting the people who work. They've won in many ways because of our own stupidity. I'll tell you one of the biggest issues with that in my view, Dick, and I'd, I'd invite you to comment on it. I can remember back in the 70s growing up as a kid and my father would take me to Moorabbin Airport um, and with the permission at least of the owner and nothing more you could climb across the fence you could sit in the aircraft and my father was able to build the dream that's not something that you can do now at these large GA airports is it? No you're absolutely right I mean it's just scandalous I mean the fact that a young kid can't go into a cockpit I cannot believe it I mean the most wonderful thing that happened to me my first trip around the world I was only 22 years of age I never thought I was sort of a backpacker but I got on the Qantas plane heading towards Singapore and 
written up into the cockpit. And that was the highlight of being able to go into the cockpit. Now, are you telling me that a young kid, uh, first of all, the security is so staggering now anyway, that you can't let a young kid have a look in a cockpit? I can't believe it. The terrorists have won. They have changed our wonderful way of lifestyle. You're right at the Bankstown Airport where the young kid has, I used to go out there when I was about 15 years of age and actually sit in people's planes. They'd let me sit there and wander from plane to plane, just as you do at a boat show or just as you do at a car rally, you can't do it. And to put that type of security on a GA airport is just totally ridiculous. If any terrorist wanted to use a GA plane for that type of activity, and no one ever has, <laughs> um, the, because the amount of explosive you can carry is far less than you can put in an Avis renter truck, but also you wouldn't take off from an airport like that. You'd take off from a field or from a, <laughs> a country bit of dirt. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. the whole thing is just a complete waste of money. It just shows how stupid bureaucrats can be. And it's it's what we call security theatre. And the, the fun bit, as you mentioned, they're an Avis renter truck, and that is a proven method for terrorist bomb delivery multiple times in the US and other yep. parts of the world. And yet any dork can go with a, a driver's license, which could be faked, and rent one. Yeah, but yeah. you're absolutely right. But look, I can tell you, I was on a committee. I've forgotten what it was, Aviation Reform Group or something four or five years ago. And we got in those people from that department that are in charge of terrorists. And they were just completely out of touch. The worst bureaucracy you could ever see that was just wasting $50 million. And I just, I was in despair for our young people because, as I said, I'm wealthy. None of this worries me. I can afford every bit of it. But... I just think these fools, I only hope it's their children that can't get jobs because they are brought in rules that have just stopped common sense from being used so an industry like GA can thrive like it did back in the days when it could thrive. We've had a number of um, airline pilots refer to a lost generation because they can't bring kids onto uh, cockpits. We've got people trying to take their kids through to those simulators like Flight Experience, Flight City, those kind of things yep. where you can go and be the pilot. But uh, yeah, it, it's the security theatre is having an impact and uh, the, the shining star that we're seeing is RAOs. A lot of benefits there. We've just come from NatFly up in Tomorrow. There was a lot of uh, people Yeah, well, uh, As I mentioned, I'm a member of RAOs and I fly and I hold a licence but that's a pity in a way that we've had to go down to the to that standard of aircraft which is not certified to the standard of normal GA aircraft so we can afford it. That's ridiculous. There's no reason why the typical Cessna 182 couldn't be run by RAOs and it would be done at that type of cost. Yeah. Uh, yes, it might end up that way. They have all, you know, they gradually work on the weight limits and so forth, but I can't see why all of the typical little private aeroplane under about 12,500 pounds couldn't be run by RAOs. If I was in charge, that's what I'd do and let the bureaucracy uh, concentrate on fair paying passengers. I'll tell you one of the things I did pick up though, being at NatFly, Dick, and it's, it's not a sector that I've had too much to do with, but I did tend to pick up an air of passion within that community of flyers. Do you sense that as opposed to the GA? Like, we, you know, we've talked a lot here perhaps about doom and gloom to do with GA, but I, I didn't sort of sense that so much with the RAOs community. They really seem to be quite enthusiastic. Well, I, but I think there's plenty of people in GA who are enthusiasts, but let me tell you about this nightmare of a story. When I was chairman, and I could have done something to upgrade, um, I think it was called the AUF at the time, but RAA, 
I had this group, you cannot believe it, I remember they were from the Geelong area of, they were GA flying school operators who were totally opposed to recreational aviation. They were trying to close it down and they campaigned with me, the minister and everyone because they said that they were training, the AUF at the time was training people in small planes which didn't have the costs that they had with their Cessna 172 and 182s dealing through CAA. And I said, well, wouldn't it be better if you move over to their field and save the costs? No, they wanted everyone to move up to the costly side because they saw that recreational aviation was competing with them. And I said, but wouldn't it be better just to get more people flying? Now, as we now know, after that, you now have flying schools that in fact have both types of aircraft. That was a start. But I can tell you, this was a group of flying school operators who did everything they could to remove AUF and RAAA recreational aviation from the scene. If I hadn't have been there, it could have happened. Oh, that's that's sort of like watching the uh, recording (laughs) industry of the US get worried about MP3s and Napster and all that kind of stuff. This it's exactly the same. The it's, it's people destroying their own industry and not saying, yeah. look, if we can get more people flying, it'll be better. And I yeah. tried to convince them of that, but I failed just as I failed to convince the nine passenger airline inverted comma Navajo operators to say, let's go to scheduled air taxi and depart um, 135 like the USA, get the cost down and let's get lots more people flying. No, they were opposed to that as well. And so it wasn't so much CASA, it was actually people from the industry who are opposed. So you basically just give up in despair at the stupidity. Well, Dick, there's been a very interesting chat so far and we very much appreciate your time. Hopefully there's a better future for the uh, GA and RA coming up and uh, mate, we'd like you to keep uh, keep trying. It's There's definitely some some hope coming through. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm around if anyone asks me. I don't spend much time in aviation now, but I'm around and uh, one day if, there's, uh, if we've got the right minister, um, I'll be there to say, let's copy the best from overseas let's get general aviation absolutely booming let's become the leader in the world in flight training and the leader in the world in recreational aviation where we make hundreds of millions of dollars of export dollars by bringing people from crowded Europe from crowded Germany and from United States bringing them here and getting them to fly I was out I flew the caravan out to Mildura and Loxton and then to Whitecliffs Broken Hill oh fabulous this was last weekend was there anyone flying there I don't think I saw another plane I didn't hear another plane in the air, not at these oh. airports. Absolutely criminal. And I thought, wow, imagine the people we could bring out to these places. Do you realise a place like Ballina on the coast or Maria on the coast to have flight training where people are next to these magnificent beaches, people in Europe wouldn't be able to believe there could be such a place yeah. or in the United yeah. States. But of course, we don't do it because you need strong government support for that, proactive support. It doesn't happen. I was talking to some of the guys running a, um, a flight training center at, at Gold Coast Airport, and they said they've had a couple of uh, students come out, especially from the Middle East, and they have, quote, lost them. They've been out there going, wow, beaches, wow, girls. And they <laughs> they, they sort of forget that they're out there to try and learn to fly, and they lose them to the system. Yeah, so that might speak. be an extreme <laughs> example. I, I wasn't <laughs> suggesting uh, Gold Coast, but, but it's a wonderful place. I was more suggesting Maria where they wouldn't have the the temptation and they could concentrate on their flying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, beautiful weather and beaches are one thing. It's it's just make sure you can still concentrate on flying. <laughs> That's right. Well, Dick, it's an absolute privilege as always to be able to speak to you and we, we really do thank you for uh, taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk to our audience again. We really appreciate it. Wonderful to talk to you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dick. I like a good figure, a nice looking shape, 
and Avalon, surprisingly, provided more figures and more comely shapes than I could have envisaged. Numbers, statistics and logistics almost overwhelmed this infrequent flyer with little brain. And I was in rapture. Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons and this is The View from the Lounge. At Avalon, I was confronted with a massive aircraft, a massive people, and what I believe in the vernacular is a massive WTF. And while one part of my cerebral cortex went into overdrive, another part decided to remain in the rational world and analyse the situation. So crunching the numbers, part number two of cortex went into the same euphoria as part number one. Explanation. You see, I studied both logistics and statistics at university, and I still have an interest in both. Now, many people would consider this a dry topic, and putting aside the fact that I once had a shipping container condemned and burnt by aqueous due to an infestation of giant snails, which is a story for another time, I cannot see how Avalon works. By my very quick and dirty calculations, there were nigh on close to 100 aircraft on display, either static or flying, and when you consider they all have to get in, and then subsequently get out, it creates a puzzle that makes a Rubik's Cube seem easy. Then there are the personnel. So planes don't always fly themselves, or look, or maybe they do, but at the interesting points of the flight, like takeoff and landing, I'm guessing there's someone sitting in the jump seat controlling what goes on. So we now have 100 planes and 100 pilots. We haven't got to the support staff yet. The general aviation planes have the aforementioned lad or lass in the jump seat, but the military planes have a full complement of minders that come along for the ride. It would also appear that the military aircraft need special protection, hence numerous gentlemen of a heavy-set variety with rather large and serious firearms at hand. And as long as you're wearing a press pass or accompanied by a lieutenant colonel, they don't ask too many nasty questions. Then there are the others, the folks who feed and water these planes when the general populace has departed. I gather most are volunteers who give their time freely to act as guides, security staff and general factotums. It's a huge array of varied people all joining together to make this thing that is Avalon happen. Now, I've been involved in organising considerably smaller functions, and in my experience, as soon as you have more than three people, you'll have greater success in getting a sack full of wet cats to sing Bach's Magnificat than to reach a consensus. That's assuming the cats all speak the same language. Avalon had flying displays from our cousins across the ditch, cousins across the bigger ditch, the French, uh, Italians and Singaporeans. Even with my deplorable language skills, which is a set that contains basic English, schoolboy French, preschool German and a smattering of survival Swedish and Russian, usually along the lines of can I get another beer, this poses an almost insurmountable linguistic nightmare. And I'm quite sure the planes don't help, because from what I saw, the variety is somewhat akin to the aviation equivalent of Dr. Zeus. Big ones... Old ones, small ones, thin. This one has been made from tin. This one has a guard all night. That one can ditch at sea all right. I do not know why rave I rant. Please go and speak to Steve and Grant. 
How anyone could put this show together is beyond me, considering you have commercial, general and military aviation, multiple languages and rather disparate requirements for some pretty high-end ticket pieces of kit. Yet it works. Flawlessly. From what I can gather, Avalon is a testament to the dedicated individuals that have a passion and a commitment to flying and the desire to share that with the general masses. I was fortunate to see my first major air show from a very privileged position. But from the looks on the faces of the public, they and I loved every moment of it. And that's the view from an increasingly and disturbingly aviation-oriented lounge. By the way, I got to sit in the pilot seat of a B-52H. None of the others did. Ha! Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation. I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, T-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. Would you like to podcast with the Lifestyle Pod Network? We are Australia's fastest growing podcast network, and we're looking for people who love to podcast. You get great benefits like a free blog, podcast hosting with unlimited bandwidth, and a great community of podcasters to connect with. Find out more by visiting lpnhost.com. Uh, 761, contact director 1265 more one today. Contact the 1265, just uh, 761, g'day. Controller's Corner with Benny Polito. G'day and welcome back to the Controller's Corner. For this segment, we're going to look at things away from the on-route control centre and into a little place called Meerkat Manor. That's the nickname of the mini tower at the Avalon Air Show. And why do we call it Meerkat Manor? Well, have you ever seen the meerkats on that show? The controllers in the mini tower were doing just about the same thing because it's a little bit on the short side and it's hard to see things off in the distance sometimes. Our job in the mini tower as airshow volunteers this year was a parking advisory service for the aircraft that were moving around on the ground because of uh, limitations with CASA and uh, the fact uh, nobody there was actually a current tower control. We weren't permitted to conduct a normal surface movement control service as you would have at a regular airport, but we made do. Our main job really was to make sure that we didn't uh, send any aeroplanes nose to nose, which we managed to avoid. The main difference with working at an air show is the amount of aircraft types you get to see. The Avalon Airport is normally home to the Conair firebombing aircraft. It's a couple of Convair water bombers from Canada 
and their scout uh, turbine error commander, as well as anywhere up to about 10 movements a day for the big airliners with the A320s. And the odd cargo movement mixed into that is a bit of navade training on the ILS. Come airshow time, however, this changes completely and becomes an absolute hodgepodge of every aircraft type on the planet almost. We have everything from ultralights like kit foxes, sky foxes, and uh, all those little things that, uh, well, only Grant or Dave Higdon would get into, right up to the big iron uh, 747s. And uh, we had a, an E3, a few C-17s, B-52 and the like. Fortunately on the ground we don't have to deal with their performance differences like the tower guys did in the air when they're dealing with everything from uh, those ultralights doing only 40 or 50 knots right up to the F-22 Raptors which I'm sure were doing a little bit over 250 when they came in. This mix of aircraft types presents a challenge when dealing with them on the ground. You have a myriad of wingspans and jet blasts and prop washers to deal with, which is one of the challenges of being a tarmac marshal, which both Grant and I have had the pleasure of doing in the past. This leads to uh, the term that we coin known as airshow parking. Unlike being at a normal airport where you have designated bays, line markings and things like that, airshow parking is quite simple. If it fits, that's where it goes. Airshows Down Under actually has a couple of guys who are dedicated to working out the parking plan months in advance, only for us to come and mess it up on the day of operation. And this is where the fun comes in. We get an aircraft that takes the wrong taxiway by accident or misses a turn because of their uh, landing roll was a little bit longer than they anticipated. Having aeroplanes potentially all over the place makes it difficult to do, as controllers would say, keep the flick. And for me, this was a bit of a challenge because it was a completely different kind of flick to what I'm used to. Working in the en-route centre, your flick is in front of you on a 21k screen. There is nothing that's off the screen that you really need to worry about most of the time. And if it is, it's pointed out to you in the handover and you've got a second screen set up to watch that aeroplane. In the airshow environment and in the tower environment in particular, which is something new for me as well, you're trying to keep the flick in a 360 degree environment with things happening in front, behind and to the sides of you at pretty much all times. This is one of the major challenges of working in the Meerkat manner to keep a track of where everybody is and where they want to go to make sure that you don't end up nose to nose and having to call out the tugs to sort the situation out. This time around I think we did quite well. We managed to avoid having any... Uh, nasty scenarios. We did have a couple of uh, times where we had to stuff aeroplanes into uh, certain locations temporarily because we simply ran out of room where they were supposed to go or we had a scenario unfolding in the place that they were supposed to go which would have led to a nose-to-nose if we had to let them continue. That's all for my experiences from this Avalon Air Show and if you want to send me an email you can do so by using atcben.pcdu at gmail.com you can follow me on Twitter as ATC underscore Ben. If you didn't have time to write those down, don't worry, they'll both be on the show notes. Until next time, I'm ATC Ben, and I hope to see you taxiing around on the ramp at Avalon 2013. Flight Lieutenant Pete Comer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, great to have you here. Now, you're one of our uh, new breed of uh, 
Super Hornet pilots. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I just uh, finished my conversion at the end of last year and, and been flying it for uh, yeah about six or seven months now. So, mate, you pretty much came straight on to the Super? That's right, yeah. I, uh, I did a tour on F-111s, then spent a couple of years teaching and now onto the Super. So how would you transition, how did you go through flight training up to the F-111? I did okay, I suppose. Yeah. Um, CT4 it, and then Mackie or was it...? No, then the PC9. Okay. Hard work, but... Uh, but you know you, you put in the time and uh, and and it, it turned out okay. Yep, excellent. And so now that you're flying the uh, Super Hornet, uh, how are you finding it compared to other aircraft that you've flown? It's uh, it's incredible. It's a very capable machine, and uh, from an operator's perspective, it's certainly challenging and uh, and and certainly a lot of work, but very rewarding and uh, and quite an impressive jet to fly. Okay. So uh, now there's two of you on board these every time. You've got yourself and you've got a Wizzo in the back, yeah? That's right, yeah, and we always operated as a crew like that. Hey, we know a lot of the uh, the initial crews for the Super Hornet were training over in the US. Were you one of those, or did you train here uh, once those guys had come back? No, I trained in, in the US. Yep. So while the uh, squadrons are getting their feet on the ground, there's training happening overseas, and I was part of that, yes. Yes, with the uh, with the Navy or with the... Yes, with the Navy, yeah. yep. So uh, that should be an interesting aside now. We, we always hear there's a bit of a rivalry between naval aviators and Air Force guys. Uh, was How did you go with that? Oh, it was fine. Because I was learning, I was concentrating on actually learning, and all I have to say is that they're a professional bunch of, uh, bunch of guys over there, yeah. and, and I'm glad we got to train over there. Yeah. Now, the sorts of roles that you're performing with this aircraft now... We guess it's come in to replace the F-111. Similar sorts of roles, similar types of flying. It's th- there certainly are differences, um, and you know the, the Super Hornet's multi-role, both air-to-air and uh, and air-to-ground. So we are doing extra things that we weren't doing with the F-111. Yeah. Um, but you know, with that air-to-ground capability, there are some similarities there as well. So would you say there's a greater inter- integration now between these aircraft and say the classic Hornets when you're out on a deployment? Um, say compared to what the F-111s were doing? I wouldn't say a greater integration. We're still going to be working pretty much side by side with the, uh, with the A-model Hornets as well. Yep. Um, it's, it, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, it's a team effort as it was with the F-111s. Now, uh, you were training in the US. Uh, how long were you over there for? Six months. Whereabouts? Uh, it was in... Um, the base is called Lemoore, so that's in California. Now, were you part of the crews that bought the uh, aircraft back to Australia? No, I, I didn't fly one back, um, and uh, and that's just a, a function of timing. Yep. Once the once uh, a few jets are ready to be ready to be brought back, then uh, yeah, we organise air crew to bring yep. them back, and I happen to still be on course when that was when that happened. Yeah. Now, how do you find the cockpit up there? Pretty roomy. It, there's enough room up there. <laughs> um, I'm not I'm not the smallest and not the largest person either, yeah. um, but it is it's it's comfortable. Mate, what kind of uh, are you able to talk to us about range, durations of missions, speeds, things like that? Uh, broadly, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, we can fly for a few hours, and we've obviously got the capability to uh, to air to air refuel. Yep. So in terms of you know staying airborne, it's it, we can yeah. stay airborne for quite a while. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, what kind of deployment range are you looking at for you? You're operating, which base are you going to be operating out of? To Amberley. So, what kind of uh, missions are you flying out of there? Give us some rough indications of that. Sure. So, as you said, operating out of Amberley, and we're training, uh, as we mentioned before, air to air and air to ground yep. sorties in the local area at this stage. Okay. Cool. So, doing the air to air work, I guess that's something you wouldn't have done so much with the F-111. So, mm-hmm. was that a challenge? In itself, was that probably one of the major challenges that you had to work through uh, transitioning to this aircraft? For me personally, yeah. I mean, that's 
that's a, a side of uh, a side of uh, flying that that I really wasn't exposed to that much with the F111. So yeah. yeah, there was there was a lot of reading and a lot of study to do for that, and still ongoing study for that as well. Yeah. Well, okay, Pete. Well, we've talked to a lot of fighter pilots today, and we're sure you guys are getting tired of us uh, media types coming out and bothering you. But uh, it's a fantastic machine, and uh, we're really. Uh, it's a privilege that you could spend some time talking to us, so we appreciate it. No problems at all. Thanks, guys. Brian, Manuel, welcome to uh, Playing Crazy Down Under, guys. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Cheers. Okay, so uh, Brian, we'll start with yourself. Uh, if you could let us know who you are. Um, Brian Dick, uh, LAC, uh, originally from Perth, born in South Africa. Okay. Uh, immigrated to the country and um, thought it was a good opportunity to join the Air Force. Yeah. Okay, yeah. excellent. Sir, if you could tell us about yourself. Uh, Potter, so Emmanuel Murray or Muzz. I'm uh, from Brisbane, Australia and uh, grew up all around the place. Okay, yeah. cool. So, Brian, how did you get into the Air Force? What made you uh, come in? Um, I decided to join the Air Force while I was still at school. Okay. Um, I had an interest in aviation. I studied aviation at school and yep. um, always not so much the, the pilot side of things, so I thought I'd move into the, the maintenance. I applied when I was at school, everything went through well, and then off I went when I graduated. And Muzz, how about you? Uh, yeah, grew up uh, mostly in Queensland, and uh, yeah, just did uh, normal subjects at school. Yep. Uh, I studied uh, Bachelor of Aviation at Griffith University, uh, up in Brisbane there. Uh, at that stage I was hoping to go civilian or military aviation, wasn't sure, and then uh, joined the military uh, about two years later as okay. a... Uh, uh, general hand as an airman, and okay. then eventually commissioned to be a pilot. Yep. And they so they trained you to fly from the start. Uh, no, I had some uh, initial training. Uh, no, it was actually through Rickley Ferro Club okay. uh, on the north side of Brisbane there. So yep. I did my PPL through them. It's yeah. a nice little strip there. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. a little bit busier now than when I was yes. there, but uh, it's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Excellent. And just done a bit of flying up at Caboolture there, which is another nice little strip. Yeah. So uh, now, in terms of your uh, flying history with the uh, RAF, uh, how, what pilot training did you go through? Were you on the CT4? That's right, we start on the CT4, so do uh, your flight screening on that. Uh, once you get in, you also do the equivalent of basically a GFPT yeah. uh, and then some uh, IF aspects at BFDS, uh, uh, flying there at Tamworth, and yep. then you go on to the PC9 after that at 2FDS. Yeah. Cool, so after you graduated from your PC9 and you got your wings and all that, where'd you go from there? Uh, onto the Hawk here, so uh, okay. we got streamed onto jets, so you initially start at 79 Squadron there, yep. um, which is a basic conversion onto the Hawk. Uh, you do about 60 hours there, and then you come over to RAF Base Williamtown. Yep. Uh, and that's when you learn how to fight the Hawk, they say. So, okay. Yeah. So actually use it in a combat scenario. That's right, yeah. In terms of, so you're basically doing, you've transitioned, you're now fully qualified? That's right, I'm fully qualified on the Hawk. Yeah. Uh, so now we're just in what they call ops flight. Yep. Uh, we're called the Banditos, and we just do things like air shows and okay. Army and Navy support. Uh, okay. So I'm just waiting for Super Hornet conversion in July. Okay. Yeah. So the inevitable question, mate, how is she to fly? Oh, she's great, yeah. 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 It's a lovely machine. It's like a British sports car, so, yeah, <laughs> compared to the American muscle car next door there, the Hornet, so, yeah. 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 No, nah, it's great. Love it. Okay. So uh, it's actually nice to be around a, a military aircraft today that we can actually ask some specific questions about because we've been over with the Raptor all morning. So uh, yeah, tell, us some, tell us some of the stats about uh, speeds and, uh, you know, thrust and all that sort of stuff. Uh, right, yeah. So it's got the uh, Rolls-Royce Adur in it. It's... Uh, 5,870 pounds. You might be able to help me out with that. That's, uh, that's pretty accurate there. Um, it's 550 knots on the deck up to Mark 1.2 at a push. Um, and yeah, so that's that's the, the big starts, I suppose. Uh, once you bomb it up and uh, put a few things on it, uh, push it, you can push it up to about 500 knots. So um, we usually do about uh, 400 to 450 when we're doing our low level stuff at 150 or 250 feet. So 
yeah, you get a pretty good rush from that. So yeah, pretty intense. Yeah, uh, yeah, that ground going past, you get a get a pretty good yeah. Yeah, really good rush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what's she like to maintain? That's relatively easy. I mean, um, there's always workers with any aircraft, but. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, it's nothing too hard. There's a couple of odd, odd spots where they've put some weird things in, but uh, <laughs> generally it's all right. Well, do you so, want to run us through the aircraft from nose to tail? Anything major to point um, out? I mean, it looks like an avionics bay in the back here. Well, yeah, this is the, the, the major yeah. avionics bay up the front. There's okay. obviously uh, oh, flight cool. control computers and stuff like that just yep. there. Um, working all the way through, this aircraft still got fuses in it. So, okay. yeah, there's fuse panels. Um, Underneath the cockpit, there's a um, the bulkhead, yep. so it's all pressurised in there, and there's a lot of avionics as well in there. Pretty much every aircraft system runs through a little panel underneath there, and we call it the hellhole. <laughs> it's only about that big. You can fit in it up in a dive, yeah, and um, that extends all the way up to the back of the uh, bulkhead there. Okay. And there's components through there, oxygen bottles. Yeah. Um, like I said, all the flight controls pass through there, so yep. there's a lot of push rods and stuff for that. We've obviously got the engine in the middle. Yep. Um, Nothing too special about the engine, no afterburning or anything like that. Um, engine changes can be a bit difficult, yeah. uh, like the Hornet where the, uh, the panels drop away and you can remove the Pull engine. The yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a lot to do to get an engine out. Yeah. And um, working to the back, uh, yeah. it's pretty simple really, the ECS is up top, yeah. yeah, and then all the flight controls. Okay. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. So pretty pretty uh, basic and and uh, good introductory lead-in trailer for trailer well, not introductory but a lead-in trainer for the high-end combat jets and uh, yep. also uh, what are the other missions you use it for uh it can be used in pretty much all out-of-ground out-of-air kind of missions uh hasn't got some of the sophisticated equipment that the uh, hornet has but uh, it can emulate it or simulate it yep. uh, it was built by bae to simulate the cockpit of the hornet uh, the classic hornet next door there uh so in a lot of ways it's, it's really quite easy to jump up from this uh into the cockpit of that Okay. Um, from what I've been told, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Tell us about some of the weaponry we've got hanging off the uh, off the side here. Okay, yeah. So today, out on the ends there, we've got the uh, they're just dummies, but they're the AIM-9Ms. Yep. Uh, so usually they just stay on the rails there when we're training. We've got the seekers in in the tips there that are usually active, so we can lock onto things and actually uh, practice our air-to-air stuff. Okay. Uh, coming inboard then, we've got some uh, inert Mark 82 uh, dumb bombs. Yep. Uh, so yeah, usually we won't uh, drop those, obviously just for cost and. Uh, and maintenance, uh, they're not great, but we usually carry a thing called a Seably. It can carry up to four um, BDUs or dumb uh, oh, small little, bombs. Yeah, little small yeah, heavy be, ones. Yeah, yeah. So we just go out to the range there at Williamtown. We uh, drop a few of those and see if uh, we can hit the target. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, because yeah, they they give sort of the same kind of glide and impact yeah. scenarios as a major bomb. Yeah, that's right. Same aerodyne as the uh, as the Mark 82 there. So yeah. Okay. Do you fly it with drop tanks? Uh, we do a lot of the time. Yeah, if we're especially if we're transiting, yeah. uh, we'll have the the two drop tanks on, which give us an extra two thousand pounds. So uh, much extended uh, transit time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, excellent. We look at the uh, the leading edge of the wing here, and you've got uh, obviously uh, some devices on there to help you go quite slow. What, how does it uh, stall? What sort of speeds would you expect to stall at? Uh, it's all dependent on weight, obviously, and alpha. Um, but uh, generally, you'd be looking at uh, you know, close to 100, 100 knots, 110 knots. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, it's that's faster it's, than most of our aircraft go. Yeah, well, it's true, <laughs> it's but that's quite, quite slow for a, for a jet. Of, you know, for a jet, I'm, so I'm yeah. surprised it's that slow. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, we glide at 190 knots, uh, which is really quite fast. Uh, it's really all uh, dependent on angle of attack and alpha yeah. and, and, and weight, obviously. Yeah, yeah definitely so, weight. Yeah, 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 it's a big kicker. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So. so 190 knots, so when you're coming in short finally, you've got everything all hanging out dirty. That's the sort of speed you'd be looking at on approach? No, actually, that's because uh, that's our like, clean uh, glide clean, speed, yep. Yep. Uh, it's, which is actually 
usually uh, coincident with five alpha, uh, which we, we can see on the HUD in front of us, which is quite easy. Uh, when we come in, we're usually uh, touching down between about 120 and 140 knots. Once again, dependent on, on the weight. So, yeah. So it's uh, once again, we don't really fly at speed. Uh, we fly an alpha. So uh, in the HUD, oh, like most people will have seen on flight simulators, there's a an alpha tape uh, that we just uh, get to the right alpha and, and fly it in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in terms of space in the cockpit, how do you find it for manoeuvring and uh, and getting around? Yeah, like I said before, it's a British sports car, so <laughs> it's pretty tight. Pretty tight. Uh, I came from the PC9, uh, which is it was fairly tight, but uh, this thing is on another level. Once you've got all your gear on, your Sekimar, your helmet, your mask, uh, when you first jump in, it can be quite uh, claustrophobic. Yeah. Uh, everything's quite close to you, especially with the HUD right there in your face. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, it's 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 pretty good once you get used to it um, and you learn how to move and you learn the ergonomics of it. Yeah. It's not too bad, yeah. Brian, you've mentioned the uh, the hell hole underneath and all yeah. that. Do you spend much time in the cockpit doing any maintenance in there? Um, not no, not not really. I'm a aircraft technician, so okay. I don't deal much with the avionics. But um, generally, there's not too much maintenance that happens yeah. in the cockpit because it's all quite uh, user friendly up there and it's easy to access. But because um, I'm cross trained as an armament technician, we do a lot of seat work. So when I'm employed in, in that stream. You're always in the cockpit. You had know, seats out, and then you're arming and disarming seats, which which is taken. That that takes place in a in a different area as well. Okay, so, yeah. Now, as an armament te- technician, do you have to worry about the deck cord and the canopy? Um, not really. When when it's when it's all installed and it's and it's yeah. it's there, you you've got to be aware of it. And uh, when the uh, the pilots are launching, yeah. you have to be aware of it as well because that's when the safety pins are out and it's yeah. a safety critical time. So you have to keep yeah. your safety distances and I, stuff. Like I did that. notice yeah. a couple of times uh, when watching the Hawk in, in action that around the time they'll be getting things ready and a lot of the crew are back behind underneath the wing yeah. or in that yeah. area on yeah. the ground. Yeah. Because it's the uh, the trip arm is very close to the, uh, the actuating arm yeah. of the detonator, it can um, if there's anything there, it can set it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. it's it's uh, actually one of those aircraft that being around it on the outside can be a little bit interesting when yes. startup. <laughs> yeah, certainly, okay. have to have a, from these guys' point of view, they have to have a lot of respect for it. And yeah. us being inside, we're probably more protected than them. So yeah. a lot of hand signals, we have to really protect them from before we close the canopy. We have to make sure they're clear. So yeah. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's yeah. interesting, and that leads me on to something I've always been fascinated to know. You've obviously got ejection seats in these aircraft, so how do you train for that scenario? Uh, I suppose it's not too much training you'd need to, to pull the handle, but yet, yeah. you're right, they did actually used to do it. They used to put people on gantries on a seat and put uh, smaller charges on them and shoot them up the rails just yeah. to see how they'd go. But I think they found, uh, to some degree, it was kind of more harm than good. People getting <laughs> Damaging toilets. Yeah, that's right. So... <laughs> So now, I mean, we know what to do to get out of the aircraft, yep. but uh, from there it's up to the seat and up to the, the sequence of events that happens. Uh, once the shoot deploys, we're then trained uh, in pools and on and uh, like flying foxes yep. uh, over the top of pools and stuff like that to how to get out out of the harness and what to do to inflate our yep. uh, second and that kind of stuff. So. They don't actually take you up in a herc and uh, with the army guys and you have to practice parachuting or anything like that. No, no actual parachuting. Uh, we got thrown out in the raft. Uh, over at Perth and then they get a chopper to pick us up to practice wet winching they call it but uh, no thankfully we don't actually have to parachute any survival training like where they throw you on an island with a knife and say go for it yeah unfortunately yes we do uh, I think called combat survival where you go up to Townsville uh, and they do certain phases like where you go out on an island do a desert phase and uh, so you go out on an island then you go in inland do a desert phase and jungle phase and uh, yeah you learn all different skills you might need if you go down in Australia and then uh, at the end of it you do a 
another phase of combat survival. We're actually getting chased through the bushes if you're in uh, some kind of war zone. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Very intense. Yeah, pretty intense, <laughs> yeah. Okay, now just to bring it back to the aircraft, uh, these zero, zero ejection seats? Or? They are, yep. Okay. So, zero motion, zero height. That's right. Right okay. now, if uh, for some reason uh, creepy in the back there or Gabo in the front needed to get out, they could. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think the ones in the PC-9 are a zero, a 60. Zero, zero 60, 60, that's right. Yeah, yeah. you're doing 60 yeah. knots. That's right, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, we've seen the Hawks flying around here uh, during the last few days of the air show. Are we going to be seeing uh, you in action at all, or are you stuck down here on the ground? No, no, not myself. I'm not one of the display pilots. I'm uh, fairly junior at the squadron here, so uh, we've got a couple of display pilots over on the hard stand there that we'll, uh, we'll be showing later on today. It looks yeah. very beautiful when it's flying. Uh, they make it uh, very crisp and precise. It's, yep. it's a smooth, flowing motion that they seem to fly this one with, not the hard throwing it around that you see a lot of the other guys doing. Yeah, it, it's pretty different to the uh, Hornet display. Uh, yeah. It's kind of chalk and cheese. I suppose a lot of people commented that this looks really quick uh, yeah. I don't know if it's because it's small or because of the paint job but uh, <laughs> yeah I really like it it's a, it's a good display to watch yeah. okay. so it's quite a noisy engine Brian um, I know from, from being on ground with these guys that you know when a Hawk's starting up and going out I mean an F-18 is, is muscle as you were saying but this has, has quite a distinctive tone to it yes it's got a very distinctive drone it's just in the, the startup procedure and the, the bypass valves and all that sort of stuff yeah. as they go so yeah, yeah definitely get a different noise from it gentlemen thank you very much for coming on the show and talking to us about the Hawks, a beautiful aircraft, and congratulations for keeping her in the air and flying it. No worries. Thanks, Thanks very much. Well. Cheers. Kerry Demar, welcome aboard the podcast. How are you going? Yeah, great. Thanks. That's good. Kerry, if you could uh, tell us your rank, where you're from? Yes, my rank is Sergeant, and I work at Rath Base Beamtown for 76 Squadron. Cool. And you're born and bred in Australia? I was. I was born in beautiful Port Stephens near Newcastle. Excellent. Okay, now uh, you're doing logistics with the Air Force. What uh, brought you into the Air Force and why logistics? Uh, just spent a lot of time in Port Stephens, as it's very close, it's only 35 um, miles from the RAF base, yep. so I knew a lot of people yep. from the area and they were telling me what a great career it was and I looked into it and thought why not and uh, been in almost 23 years now, Okay. so it's cool. been pretty good. And so did you go in and just go, hey I want to join and they suggested logistics or did you think that was a good, good career path for you? I had a look at what there was on offer, um, had a look at what my education matched mm-hmm. yep. um, and logistics just seemed to be the one that I chose that I thought yes that seems pretty good there's a variety of different things that you do in logistics which is yep. good I like variety yep. uh, I didn't want to just sit behind a desk doing the same thing time in time out so logistics seemed the go for me okay now you're here with uh, 76 squadron uh, looking after the Hawks yes okay what's involved in looking after the Hawks given that we've got BAE systems doing a lot of the uh, you know the the main maintainer kind of roles uh, suppliers things like that yes back home BAE systems do actually look after the aircraft spares we yep. have a totally different role in the world of logistics back home but when we go away such as to this Avalon Air Show we don't take any BAE people with us they are civilians we have one storeman working at 76 at the moment so we then have to learn what they do do on a normal day-to-day basis and bring that with us and we then deal with the spares. So we work with BAE back home. We uh, communicate with them when we need to have replenishment of spares. We also need to return the spares back to them because they need to get them back into the pipeline, get them repaired so that we have enough spares because obviously if we don't, these things can't fly. Exactly. So we still need to communicate. We just take on a bigger role when we go away. And so how much planning is there involved in doing something like Avalon? Well, in the logistics field, we actually do most of the planning when it comes to going away. Uh, For this exercise, I started doing the planning back in October. Logistics field, we do accommodation, uh, 
we have to communicate for messing. Yeah. Obviously, when we're going away to different bases, we need to let them know that there's going to be an influx yeah. of more people. How much they need to be, they need. Yes, like they need to be able to prepare for that. Yeah. We also need to say, well, can you supply us with certain things like nitrogen and oxygen? Yeah. Or do we need to take that with us? So we need to do all that sort of involvement. Um, sometimes we, we may get airlift support to yeah. take our cargo to where we need to go. Most of the time we have to get trucks to do it for us, Uh, so we need to send out quotes. Obviously we need to put out the quotes and get the best tender, um, find out who's going to carry our gear. So sometimes it's, we had an exercise last year, we went from Williamtown to Townsville, Townsville to Tyndall, Tyndall to Darwin. So it was quite a few months before we actually got our gear back. So that was a lot of planning and yeah, so different trucking companies and getting moving the people around. Indeed. Was that for an exercise like Pitch Black or something like that? We did go to Pitch Black, yes. Yeah. But so we had several exercises. We had an exercise prior. Yeah. And then we had Pitch Black straight after. And yeah. then we had another one after wow. that. So As they say, a logistical nightmare. Yes. Well, we're also planning for two other exercises back home at the moment. Okay. So when I get home from this, yeah. I'll get stuck into planning for the other two. <laughs> so it's quite a busy job. Yeah, back into the paperwork there. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> back at the computer. So were you using uh, road transport to get everything around for all those exercises? Yes, we did. Oh, wow. Yes. Because, I mean, everyone would just think you'd whack it in a C-17 or a C-130 and, sh- and air freight it. Yes, you would think so. But as you know, we have a lot of natural disasters these days. True. And a lot of the times we do plan for that. Yeah. In the logistic world, we always have to be prepared for changes. So we will plan and think we're going to get airlift support. Yep. All of a sudden, some natural... Whether it <laughs> goes know, wrong, yeah. yes, and uh, all of a sudden, bang! I have to change, and we're going road freight. So yep. it's one of those things where we're very flexible. We know things never go on on the way they're meant to. Yep. So yes, plus a bit of hurry up and wait. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, keeping the hawk in the air and, and the role that you perform with logistics? Uh, just a totally different, obviously, to the technical trade, but a very worthwhile. Um, mustering to be in Uh, if anyone ever wants to go into the Air Force don't always think of just obviously the technical side some people forget about the logistics side and it is an interesting trade so it's just one of those things that that there's always administration logistics other fields Okay, well Sergeant thank you very much for coming on thank you very much Folks, we want to have a chat now about a new service that's being offered to us by the Civil Aviation Safety Authority grant. It's called OnTrack, a new online visual pilot guide. Yeah, that's right, Steve. It's a multimedia presentation that supplements the VTCs and VFG and shows you video of what to expect as you're approaching and departing the seven airports that it covers. Yeah, it's really handy to be able to uh, click on this website, click on the airport that you'll be planning your flight into or out of, and uh, actually being able to click on specific videos showing uh, arrival and departure procedures and uh, being able to look at the videos and uh, seeing exactly what you'll be looking for. And uh, that's a good way to keep it fresh in your mind, particularly if you're uh, not used to using that particular aerodrome regularly. Yeah, I mean, you can get a lot of information from the various uh, printed documents, but there's nothing quite like seeing a video which says, oh, this is what that reporting looks like, and oh, here's what to expect from over here. Uh, it really does help cement the information into people's minds. As an example, one of the departures that you can do from Moorabbin Airport here in Melbourne is to uh, head out to the north uh, of Melbourne via the Kilmore Gap. And here's a brief example of how OnTrack describes this departure for you. If conditions permit. When clear of the Moorabbin CTR, head towards Sugarloaf Reservoir. Be aware there may be traffic at 1,500 feet entering Melbourne CTR. If possible, 
Listen out on yeah, so really handy stuff. It also gives you information on uh, runway numbers uh, and tells you uh, hot spots around the airport to look out for, particularly uh, handy when you're looking at crossing active runways. There's, uh, it's very good at pointing out the uh, runway incursion hotspots. That's very, very handy information to know too. It also gives you additional information for uh, finding a way around uh, military zones. Uh, it's also got information there for RA aircraft as well. So Grant, a very handy service. You can find that at casa.gov.au slash OnTrack and we'd really be uh, interested to know what you folks think of it. Please do uh, let us know if you've been using it and what you think of it. Absolutely. www.casa.gov.au slash OnTrack. Hi, this is Max Flight. This is Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com If you get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you plain crazies back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com Traffic in the Oscar Tango is rolling. Good trade. Here we go. Alright. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, so the first thing we do, we go for height. We're above 3,000. A nice gentle roll just to get used to it. Wow. We'll get you another one up to the right. Big barrel roll, up we go. Pull out 2G there. Whoa. Okay, we've got a G turn. What a G turn does warms you up to the idea of a bit of a G force, okay? Okay. So what we do, don't forget, get ready to uh, tense up. Are you ready? Yep, ready. Okay, a bit of G coming on, 2G there. How do you feel? That's quite a... <laughs> Alright, becomes 4. That's 4G four there. Alright, that's heavy. You can certainly tell the difference, can't you? Oh, yeah, gee whiz. Up we go, we climb up, get a bit of height. Up for your slingshot mission. We'll go down for a loop. Remember, at the bottom of the loop, you've got to tense up. Okay? Roger. Okay, looking around for traffic. Here we go, tense up. Oh, right. Okay, looking backwards, here comes the ground. Upside down, there's no G on there. Yeah, it really compresses you. Yeah, it does. Okay, a little bit of G coming on, put a bit more power on. Okay, vertical roll, you ready? Up we go. Straight up. Looking out to the left. Are we going vertical? Yes or no? Yes, we are. Rolling round. <laughs> Alright. Upside down. Okay, at the ground, round we go. Bit of detail, you ready for it? Okay, all we'll do is we'll pitch up for a four point hesitation roll, right? Up we go. One, two, three, four. Nothing to it. How do you feel? I think I'm okay. I wouldn't want to pull any more teeth now, I think. No, it gets a bit heavy, doesn't it? <laughs> 
to surprise me how much it pushed me down from the head. Yeah, the idea is you have to keep your neck straight. If you keep your neck straight, you'll be right. We'll go for a Cuban 8. Cuban 8's like a double loop. Down we go. Wings level. There's our speed right now. Okay, out of the flat. Up we go. Bends up. We're flying the ground upside down now on a 45 degree down line. Okay, here we go. 35 degrees. Around we go. Looking out for traffic. Looking left, looking right. We're on the 45 degree down line. Looking for our speed. Here's our speed, 280. Level off and pull. Not to forget the 10 seconds. Oh, waiting for the horizon to come around. Here it is. Melbourne Radar, good day, Sergeant Mark. Upside down. Sergeant Radar, Sergeant Mark, thanks. Time tracking directly. Oh, there we go. Request clearance to climb. Oi, oi, boy. Sergeant Mark, we're just walking through. Okay, hang on, I'll round we go. Okay, Charlie, please. Sorry, bullet nine. All right, you ain't ready for the exciting bit. Gotta get it on the ground. Oh, it's right, speed check. Wheels are coming down. One. Two, three. Okay, flaps down, gears down. Okay, I'll give you a take your feet off there, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I slipped. Oh, they all say that. <laughs> Alright, 120 knots we want. Speed brakes are out to slow us down. Nothing below 80% on the engine. Short strip. Speed brakes away. Nice tree. I'll just roll on through. Ah, uh, such wonderful memories, Grant. I'll tell you what, that ride in the L39, mate, uh, you know, you need to turn 40 again, mate, so that you can get a ride. Yeah, I think I need to go and join Eddie in the space-time continuum and uh, see if I can help him find where his towel is so I can get back there again. <laughs> Absolutely. And i tell you what, uh, when I got back down from that ride, I must admit, and I, I don't mind admitting it, I did feel a bit green by the end of it, and uh, I, I get the sense that Mark would have done another uh, another couple of loops, you know, if I'd said I was feeling okay, and I, I, I did kind of consider actually uh, saying, no, nah, no, nah, she'll be right, mate, but um, looking 
looking back, one of the mistakes I'd made on that day was um, I was paranoid about two things. A, uh, losing consciousness, or B, uh, throwing up everywhere. I didn't want to do that, particularly with cameras pointed at me. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I actually hadn't eaten anything since about 8.30 that morning, and we actually didn't get it up into the air until about uh, probably about 4.30 that afternoon. So my stomach Ooh, was yeah, empty. that's not good. <laughs> Especially not for you, Mac. Yeah, that was a yeah, it was a, not a good thing for me. And uh, funny enough, I didn't feel like eating when I came back down either. But uh, I was feeling a bit green, and I was uh, when I got out of the plane. Um, you, you don't realise actually how hard you're working to uh, you know to counter those G's. I was uh, quite sweaty actually when I climbed down out of the jet. But yeah, it was all really good. And we we did get video. We put a short video out, as you'd know if you're uh, getting the feed regularly. We did make a clipped down version of that video. But uh, we're working on a uh, another longer video that's also going to include uh, some uh, some interviews with some other people that went up uh, over the course of the week that the guys were down here. And uh, also, Grant, uh, that video is going to include some vision of you last year up with Joel Heskey from Red Baron when he took you for a ride in the uh, in the extra 300. Yeah, that's right, mate. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I've got to say, I wasn't really feeling green. I was feeling elated. I got down out of that one. It was the best ride I've ever had. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. I must say, you know, I, the first time I ever had any experience with aerobatics was uh, way back when I was about 19. And uh, I, I don't mind saying that terrified me. And uh, I don't think I've really dabbled in it ever since, but uh, it was a quite a different sensation uh, being up in this jet. Uh, it was obviously a lot larger than anything I'm used to flying, uh, and it had a, such a uh, more solid feel in it. I actually, uh, I've said to a few people actually, when uh, Mark was doing some of the manoeuvres, yeah, I actually felt more like I was at a fixed point in space with the Earth uh, revolving around that fixed point. It was it was quite bizarre actually. So, uh, but yeah, those G forces when they come on, I actually had anticipated them sort of pushing through my chest and pushing me back into the seat, whereas in actual fact, they push from your head down. So the trick I'm told is to keep your neck straight. So that's anyway, uh, four it, or five mate. Gs, that's quite enough for me, mate. I think you, you've pulled eight with uh, Joel and um, you can have that all to yourself, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I have uh, played around with the edge of G-lock, so... <laughs> was right on the edge of losing consciousness. It was awesome. Well, somebody who won't be losing consciousness, Grant, I think, is our postie. In fact, here he comes down the street. Oh, well, I don't know. You know, he's got to do some pretty heavy pedalling and bouncing off the curbs. Mm, absolutely. And I uh, tell you what, mate, he, I hope he's got his raincoat on today because it's quite wet. Well, you know, rain, winter, it's on the way. Listener mail, listener mail. We've had another good batch of listener mail come in, and we're going to go back to a few that have uh, been sitting here for a while, Grant. And uh, you know, we apologise to folks. We haven't been able to pump some of these shows out as quick as we'd like. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd pop one out every week if we had the time. But uh, curse those day jobs, Grant. They keep getting in the way. Yeah, totally. Day jobs and family. Damn. <laughs> now you know, Grant. It's it's interesting actually. We we're getting a lot of mail from Canada, so uh, yeah. that, that's good to see. It's it's nice that our uh, Canadian friends up there. Good to see another Commonwealth country uh, listening to our show, Grant. Yes. Well, you know, once you're part of the Commonwealth. Well, if you can't get out, well, you can try, but... No, no, resistance is futile. <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, there are benefits to being in the Commonwealth. You know, you get to go and trounce England at various games like cricket, rugby. Yeah, well, I don't think there's been much of that going on lately either, just quietly, but anyway. Well, this one comes in from Callum Sang, and uh, he just uh, wrote in, uh, actually, back at the end of March, uh, Callum, my apologies for not getting back to you sooner, uh, just saying he'd uh, like to thank us for the great show. Found the show a few months ago through the Airplane Geeks and uh, has been uh, enjoying our podcasts uh, whilst uh, driving on his long commutes, I'm presuming, uh, to uh, work there and back. Uh, Granny was saying that he really enjoyed our F-111 retirement episode and the A380 episode that we did last year with uh, Richard Woodward. So uh, thanks, Callum. It was nice of you to write in, mate. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's like I say, it's nice to see that we're getting uh, so much traffic from other parts of the world. In fact, we'll talk about our survey a little later, Grant, and talk about uh, some of the interesting things that we found out through doing that. Well, we'll get to that later. But mate, the uh, next one we've got here is from Peter Hans. And uh, yeah, he just wanted to say that he appreciated the Avalon uh, air show coverage and uh, really enjoyed the questions we 
threw out there and uh, the answers we got back and uh, he's actually hoping we can make it to Oshkosh this year. And you know what? So are we. So are we, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I've, I've been getting in training, mate. I think I can swim this time. Yeah, yeah. Not 100% sure that that project's going to come off for us this year. But, you know, we can live in hope, Grant. You never know what might come up at the last minute. Oh, well, we dream. Becoming increasingly last minute. <laughs> Every day it gets more and more lasterer. <laughs> yeah, so uh, thanks, Peter, for taking the time to write into us, mate. We really appreciate it. And uh, Grant, he comes from Burlington, Ontario, Canada. So uh, there you go, another Canadian. Blame Canada. We should get some Australians to write into us, Grant, or some Kiwis. Yeah, that would be a novel change. <laughs> well, I got one here from Carl Rossi, and he's in Redlands, California. Now, uh, Grant, um, you know, when I saw this email come in uh, back on the 14th <laughs> of May, uh, I sort of read it as I was getting up to start the morning routine and I sort of uh, fired up the Blackberry and read this and I, you know, the title of the email says, listening to your podcast is going to cost me $13,000. I thought, oh my God, what's going on? I had visions of him, uh, you know, like losing control, yelling and screaming at his uh, iPod as he was driving along and having a massive crash or something. I was thinking, my goodness, I hope we've got some insurance. (laughs) But anyway, uh, he says here in the byline straight under that, he says, uh, but it'll be money well spent, let me explain. He says, "Uh, dear Grant Steve, he said, I made the mistake of subscribing to your podcast about six months ago after hearing the Australia desk on the Airplane Geeks. Uh, He said, although he's had the distinct pleasure of travelling over here to Australia for both work and pleasure. In fact, he's been here five times, he says, in the last 11 years. Is. Uh, he's never done any flying while he's here. And uh, he goes in on to uh, talk here about his background. He's uh, got an instrument rating uh, private pilot, over 3,600 hours in the logbook. And in fact, Grant, at the moment, he's flying a Corvallis TT, which is one fine flying machine. Well, I've never flown one of those, but I've well, seen them, and boy, they are nice-looking machines. Yeah, the Cessna took over Columbia, and uh, out comes the Corvallis TT, very sexy piece of uh, aircraft, and I'd really like to have a look at one of those and up close and personal one day. Mm, absolutely. Well, he's Put in the invite here to us, Grant, if we ever make it over to California. And uh, boy, uh, you know, there's even more incentive to make the uh, the big trip. But uh, Granny's saying, uh, having listened to the show uh, for the past half year or so, it's become quite clear to him that, uh, number one, there's quite a bit of fun and interesting flying to be had here in Australia. And two, what the heck am I waiting for? So one thing leading to another, Grant, he's coming down here to do a uh, air tour of Australia, Southeast Australia, uh, in February. Oh, excellent. Yeah, excellent. So uh, he says he'll be taking in Victoria, South Australia and uh, Tasmania. So, uh, well, I'll tell you what, that'll be a good time to be flying down here at that time of year too, uh, Carl. So, uh, uh, yep, <laughs> you shouldn't jinx you like that, should I? But uh, yeah, Carl, uh, it's nice of you to extend that invitation for us to ride in the Corvallis. So, should we ever make it over to California? Well, uh, we will uh, extend the uh, invitation to you equally, mate. Uh, when you're over here next February and you're flying in Victoria, if you make it down here anywhere close to Melbourne, well, certainly let us know and uh, we'll pop out to one of the local uh, airports here, uh, wherever you're coming in, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll certainly meet up. That'll be great fun. Definitely. Oh, looking forward to it, mate. Can't wait to hear the stories. Well, uh, that's it for the listener mail this week. Uh, playing crazy down under at gmail.com as always, folks. Uh, certainly take the time if you uh, want to write in and uh, not only tell us how much you love the show, although you know you can do that as much as you like, but uh, <laughs> also uh, you know keep us honest and uh, let us know. Grant, uh, the other thing I wanted to uh, mention too is we're getting a lot of traffic through our Facebook page, which is great. In fact, we're probably getting more traffic now through there than uh, than any other portal. Indeed. I think uh, people spend a lot of time on Facebook. We've also had people put their own comments in there and uh, ask questions of us, uh, not just just uh, what's it like living down under but uh, yeah it's all pretty good and we really appreciate all the feedback and commentary and we like hearing from everyone who's listening sometimes there's great stuff Uh, we take the good with the bad and it uh, helps make a better show that's the uh, reasoning behind creating the survey by the way the survey which has had quite a few people fill it in so thanks to all those who have filled in the survey we really appreciate you taking the time 
Yeah, we certainly do. Now, we can't guarantee that we'll uh, be able to um, do everything that you've asked of us there. There's been some really, really interesting uh, feedback in there and some, some great suggestions for uh, story ideas, which we're, we're putting in the list, our ever-increasing to-do list. And like I say, we'll, we'll do our best to get to all the things that you've asked of us. Sometimes it's a little hard to chase up some things, but we'll certainly do our best. There's been some great suggestions there. So thanks to everybody that's taken the time to fill out that survey. You can still, if you haven't already, you can still click on the survey button there on our website at playingcrazydownunder.com and uh, certainly let us know. Uh, some of the demographics are interesting, Grant. Uh, not a lot of women <laughs> listen to the yeah, show. Well, that's, no, I blame that's you for that, Grant. Yeah, well, you know, I do have this effect on women. They run screaming. <laughs> that's right. So, uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, most of the people we find listening to the show uh, seem to be around about our vintage and male. So, uh, yeah, that's good. So, Grant, I guess we can swear a lot more often on the show and get away with it. Oh, well, there's always that, although you're going to have to take the G rating off. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, interesting stuff. Thanks to everybody who uh, took the time. And don't forget, we still have our forum on downwind.com.au as well. So, that's uh, yeah, another interesting portal there. And uh, mentioning uh, Anthony Simmons a bit earlier in the show, uh, he made an appearance there. Anthony loves to point out to me that his section on the Downwind Forum is the yeah. most viewed one by a long shot, and it is. And uh, I can tell you too, folks, if you want to communicate with Anthony, that's about the best way to do it. Anthony always makes sure that if you make a suggestion to him or want to talk to him uh, through the forum there, he always makes sure that he gets back to you and uh, writes a response. As does ATC Ben if you go over to the Controller's Corner section, which also gets a lot of traffic. Absolutely. Now, before we go into shout-outs, Grant, we should mention that interview with Dick Smith. We'd certainly invite uh, your feedback on that. A lot of people we talked to about Dick Smith and you know it, it, there's no middle ground people either love him or they hate him but interesting when we got onto the discussion there I thought Grant about uh, user fees which is a big bugbear of ours and uh, it had become uh, more and more apparent to me or at least uh, through talking to people since our last interview that uh, there's, there's certainly an impression out there that Dick was actually the person that brought that in and I, I'm, I'm glad that he took the uh, the time to explain how that happened it seems to me I guess perhaps from talking to him that it was perhaps at best an unintended consequence of well, his, he, uh, some of his reforms as he said, it was both sides of government were saying, you've got to do it. There was no way out of it. It was, this has to happen. Okay, it's got to happen. How can we make it as least painful as possible? Yep, and uh, well, it's certainly uh, this many years down the track, it's uh, it's very, very painful. So, uh, you know, uh, going back to our episode with Ben Morgan a few weeks back where we were talking about aviation advocacy, this is something that we really need to push. We we can't let them keep putting up the, uh, the taxes and charges, and you'll hear me banging on about the carbon tax, but uh, in all honesty, that's going to be yet another other impost on uh, all areas of our uh, of our economy, but it's certainly going to hit aviation uh, as well. So uh, we really need to uh, start organising, I think, folks, and, and really pushing our politicians to start taking uh, general aviation in particular just a little bit more seriously. We don't want to let these user fees get any more out of control than they are, let's face it. That much is certain, but uh, yeah, look, feel free to come on to uh, Facebook, come on to the downwind.com.au forums, or even the uh, comments against the episode notes on our uh, site, and uh, put in your comments about it. Got to say thanks to Raptor over on Downwind who uh, started his own thread in our area about uh, the CASA flight planning kit. So great to see that uh, listeners are creating threads in our forum and uh, appreciate everyone's comments on that. It was a pretty interesting little chat. Yeah, I've got to say just on that too, uh, that, that's talking about the uh, the CASA uh, flight planning kit that they're, they're all but giving away. I think it's 15 bucks for the postage and uh, that's had a lot of positive feedback. So, you know, we, we quite often come down on CASA a lot, Grant, don't we? But uh, in this case, um, you know, their online store there, I think that'd be well worth getting across and uh, it seems like all of the comments in that section on our, on our forum there have been uh, quite positive about it. I haven't actually uh, got one of the kits myself, but it's probably about time I did. I'd say so, mate. We're doing you're a bit more back- flying lately, yeah. Well, you're getting back into the flying, you're getting closer to being current 
it again. So, uh, yeah, mate, definitely I think you should spend a little bit of time on the CASA uh, website. I myself at the moment i am not so much on the CASA shop. I'm spending a bit more time starting to get buried into the rules and regulations, but that's a whole different story and we'll come up with that one in, uh, at a later date. Okay, well, it's getting on a bit, Grant, so let's uh, move into shout-outs before we finish off here. There's a couple of shout-outs uh, this week for some of our podcasting friends and bloggers in particular, Grant. Um, I wanted to talk about our friends over at the Airplane Geeks. They've had a couple of outstanding episodes lately and, uh, well, of course, you know, all their shows are good and not Especially just because we're on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, episode 144 and episode 146 in particular, uh, folks, if you don't listen to the Airplane Geeks, well, point one, shame. Shame on you. You indeed, should be listening. Indeed. It's a great show. But episode 144, they actually had a great interview and a long one too at that with Igor Sikorsky III. And uh, it was a fascinating interview, a really good one. I highly recommend it, folks. Um, actually, uh, when Grant and I were heading up to Natfly in the car, uh, and that's quite a long drive here from Melbourne, uh, we, we had that one playing. And boy, I yep. tell you what, it was uh, a great way to uh, to take up the hour and a half or so that show went for. It was was a really great interview. I highly recommend it. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, Igor Sikorsky III being, of course, the grandson of Igor Sikorsky, the man who did so much work on the helicopter and uh, founded the Sikorsky Aircraft Company. And uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating getting some insight into the great man and uh, what he wound up doing. Absolutely. And the other one is episode 146. And okay, Grant, you'll groan in the background, but this is actually with uh, Mikey McBride. Uh, now, most of you probably watch Ice Pilots NWT that's on Foxtel here in Australia. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of fun and it does get bogged down a bit sometimes in some of the non-aviation stuff, which I know Grant finds rather frustrating, don't you, mate? <laughs> mate, I would absolutely love to have a director's cut of Ice Pilots NWT. Cool people, amazing aircraft, great scenery. Just ease back on the over-dramatization of it and just tell the stories. And I reckon that show would be on my absolutely must-have. Every single person in the universe must have and watch this show. Yeah. As it is, I think everyone should at least watch it. It's cool, but I, I yeah, I would be a lot happier if they backed down on the dramatization. But they did the same thing with Australia's Top Guns, mate. They did the same thing, and it really annoyed me. They just try and make it more dramatic than it already is. Yeah, so uh, apart from that, though, if you really want to know what it's like behind the scenes, that's episode 146 of the Airplane Geek Show, uh, and they do talk to Mikey McBride there, and he does actually have some interesting stories about oh, yeah. uh, yeah. how they filmed the show and uh, it was great it was a really really fun interview and uh, I actually I think he appreciated being on a on an aviation focused show where he didn't have to sort of uh, you know generalise for the more mainstream media I think he enjoyed some of the more specific questions so yeah it was a really good one yeah no it was good I enjoyed that episode and I enjoyed listening to what Mikey had to say well Grant uh, one of the other podcasts around and speaking of uh, fun podcasts that we like to listen to uh, far and away the best produced aviation podcast on the planet I think is the UK based Flaps podcast and uh it must be good, Grant, because they've been winning awards. That's right. They're uh, they're doing really well. They've uh, picked up a nomination in New York and they've won an award back home. Uh, well done, guys. I'm very impressed. Well, Mark and Elliot, of course. Now they're um, you know they're they're media professionals. They uh, they do some TV work and they work uh, on the BBC, I think, as well. And they do some work on uh, commercial radio in the UK. But uh, I tell you what, if I could make our show sound as slick as they make their sound, I'd be very very satisfied. I mean, we should hire them, Grant, to come over here and uh, show us how to do things properly. It's a great show, Flaps Podcast. No, totally worth it. Uh, if you're not listening to it, it's uh, typically about half an hour long each episode. Uh, usually one a month, but uh, sometimes less, depending on how. Busy the guys are, and well worth listening. 
Okay, Grant, one more shout-out, and this is to uh, Todd McClamrock at uh, My Flight Blog. And speaking of Airplane Geeks, he was actually on episode 147, the last one, actually. So, yeah, I just wanted to uh, shout-out quickly to Todd McClamrock because he's also had an L39 ride, and he uh, posted on our Facebook page, I think it was, about that, and uh, put a link there, which we'll put in the show notes. And uh, i tell you what, not only did he get to ride in an L39 over there in the US, he actually got some stick time in it as well. And uh, I dared not touch the stick. In fact, I'll tell you a funny uh, thing. Uh, it was actually uh, quite a wet day on the day. I had my uh, ride, so actually the floor in the cockpit of this L39 was quite wet. And uh, as we were coming in over the keys uh, you know, on short final there uh, at Turin Airport, my foot sort of slipped and hit the rudder pedal, which uh, Mark felt. He sort of said, hey, and I sort of said to him, I'm oh, sorry, mate, it slipped. And he said, yeah, yeah, well, everybody says that. <laughs> yeah. To quote the famous phrase, that's what she said. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> oh, no, it's, uh, yeah. Well done to Todd for getting an L39 ride. One day, guys, one day I'll catch up with you and, uh, yeah, hopefully get some stick time and get to do some arrows in a, in a jet. That oh. would just, yeah, been looking forward to that for a very long time. Oh, well, Grant, maybe one day. <laughs> I dream. <laughs> well, folks, that's everything we've got for this week's episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget you can hear us on the Airplane Geek Show and you can also hear us on Flight Time Radio every second or third week. That's at flighttimeradio.com. We'll be back soon with episode 65 of Playing Playing crazy down under, but until then, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks.